Welcome to the Teaching Classroom 21, a podcast by the Ever Learner. I'm James, your host. Join me and my guests every week as we discuss, debate, and explore the features of a world-class classroom in the 21st century. Welcome to the Teaching Classroom 21 podcast and video interviews. I'm your host, James Sims, and joining me in the studio today is Will Swades. Will is a PE teacher with 13 and a half years of secondary PE experience. Uh, Will has enjoyed three and a half years as head of PE at the Youth Sport Trust, where he was charged with the task of increasing PE provision offer, quality, and support. Importantly, Will has worked at every level of PE, working with individual learners, teachers and departments, as well as consulting and working at governmental level, advising on PE provision and what the future of the subject might be. For these reasons, Will is well versed in the state of PE in education today, a topic we will no doubt discuss at various points throughout our interview. Will has just um, very recently embarked on his Masters in Education and soon and he and he is well set to become a successful senior influencer in secondary education. Finally, Will has been a confidant and professional colleague of mine for the past four years, sharing challenging and engaging conversations and commentary. Will, welcome to the show. Hi Hi there, James. Thanks. You're welcome. Will, tell us a little bit about where you are in in your career right now. It feels to me like things are changing. Tell us about what's been and what's coming. Yeah, I guess new chapter time, isn't it? And changing gear. And uh, I've never really been one for taking one step after the other. I'll just take a bit of a jump and a leap of faith and see what happens. So um, yeah, I was really enjoying teaching PE and in schools. Um, Had a great advisory role working across a number of schools and leading heads of PE networks, etc. And that drew me to a number of schools and special measures, which led to me thinking, oh, I'll, I'll uh, I guess I'll enjoy working wider than PE. Um, so before long, I was an assistant head and then spending all of my time outside of PE. And I thought I need to find a way to get back to where my, my heart lies, I guess. Um, so started looking elsewhere, um, throughout the schools and the Youth Sport Trust to a national charity, uh, responsible for trying to build a brighter future for young people through PE and sport. We're advertising for this head of PE role. And I thought, well, they're not a was it, Was it a new role at the time? Um, the previous post holder it was under a slightly different title and she'd moved out to New Zealand had poached her um, so it existed but it was a slightly different guys um, and the then chair of the organisation Baroness Sue Campbell who I've got an awful lot of time for um, recognised that there was some marginalisation and some issues happening at secondary PE so they were really keen whilst the organisation was doing a lot around primary and the primary PE and sport premium and driving change uh, in primary education, um, I guess their eye had perhaps been taken a bit off the ball at, at a secondary level um, in the days of sports colleges and SSCOs and partnership development managers, all of that, uh, I guess, infrastructure and landscape had changed. So, yeah, I'd, I'd always had this thing with uh, teachers where I'd say, well, I did a lot of um, support with perhaps struggling teachers, but also with teachers new to the profession. And I always had this thing where if you're not enjoying it or you're not good at it, don't do it. Uh, you can't you can't waste your time doing something you're not happy with, but also with young people's education, it's really important. You're you're passionate and driven to 
be good at it, not be stuck in the job. So it's quite ironic that I was pushing people to say, if you know, if you're not in it for teaching or if you're not getting on at it, stop doing it. And then suddenly I stopped teaching, despite the fact I still loved it and wasn't sure I wanted to be out of the classroom. Um, so I guess for me, ideal would have been staying in school part time, but then trying to do that national role at the same time. And I recognise that that wasn't possible. There was and still is a lot to do around that national infrastructure uh, practice and policy around PE. So yeah, jumped two feet in, spent three and a half years there, and now it's time for another chapter change. So um, some of the stuff that really floated my boat over those three and a half years was perhaps more of the operational stuff and the, the face time with the profession and trying to influence and drive change. And uh, whilst I've got some of that within the job, uh, there was perhaps some other aspects of it that I wasn't enjoying or weren't best suited to my skill set. Mm. So, um, so yeah, so now's that chance to go, well, what do I do next? How do I do more of what I love and more of what I'm good at and less of the, the grind mm. uh, and less of the late night emailing, hopefully. So, uh, so yeah, so that's the plan. I started uh, a master's in educational leadership with Exeter Uni. Um, I guess when I finished um, my teacher training, I thought I never want to do any formal learning again. I don't want any qualifications. I, I did my senior leadership training didn't bother with the assignment to get my master's accreditation flat at the time but since being at YST for the last two and a half years I've been really pulled towards some of the PhD students we've supported or master's studies or research that we've been helping I guess mobilize and bring to the fore um, my other half's doing a master's in um, well her, her background's physiotherapy but mm -hmm. she's doing her her uh, PhD at the moment in um, knowledge mobilization mm -hmm. so again whilst the theme is very different the topic of trying to help take stuff that people are learning in research and get that into practice faster um, really connects us in terms of our conversation over dinner, as sad as that is. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so I'm hoping um, to experiment with this idea of doing more of the tutoring, doing more of the face-to-face -face delivery, doing some work for Loughborough University um, on their trainee teacher programme and um, at the same time, I guess, learning some more through that, through that master's. Are you taking a risk, Will? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I guess I was quite naive as a young person, and I thought life was fairly straightforward. And you, you know, you're born, you, you get educated, you, you go to uni or you don't, you get a job, you get married, you have kids, you, you retire, you die. Uh, and I guess life chances to me have proven that Life's not like that. It's more of a roller coaster. Mm. And I guess initially I was quite against that idea. And I think the minute you embrace it and realise that the roller coaster is far more fun mm. than, the, than the straight line trajectory. Yeah. Um, and that straight line is, as you say, is, is arguably a lot less reliable these days than it was, say, 30. I, I look at my parents' generation and I think the description you just made there of the you get the education, you get the job, you stay in the job, you get married. I think that was quite predictable for a lot of people. Yeah. I think that is far less the case today. Yeah, I, I think you almost think that's the way life is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. I'm actually quite jealous of, of the next generation because I believe that will be quite different. The idea of a career for life won't exist. Uh, and I guess we're now trying to test the market at that idea of leapfrogging between different aspects of your life and different careers. Mm -hmm. um, I think... Uh, yeah, I'm just com coming up to my 40th and thinking I'd, I'd far rather um, take what I've learnt in this this first part of my career and use it, but at the same time use it in a slightly different way and in a different place. Yeah. Um, 
Was there, in your opinion, and I guess your action spells out, but was there more risk in staying and continuing than in moving on and and, and doing something different? In terms of when I was in education and teaching or my role at YST? Actually, actually both. I mean, Um, do do you you feel, I mean, one of the things I think I I notice a little bit in the teaching profession is um, risk aversion sometimes leads to people staying in jobs a little bit too long sometimes. Yeah, I guess. I've always been attracted to change, mm-hmm. and that's why I found myself being drawn towards schools in difficult circumstances, towards the Sport Trust at a time when I absolutely recognised what they also recognised and wanted to push and drive and support the profession to, to change. Um, and I also recognise when stuff starts to stagnate a little bit, um, and you start repeating stuff, and I think that's when it naturally becomes time to. To, to hang up your coat and give someone else a chance to then pick that baton up and take take it take it on. From from your work at the Youth Sport Trust, then, Will, I mean, what what were or what for you are the, are the, are the key aspects of the subject and the experience? And I talk about across the key the age ranges, potentially from uh, primary all the way through to uh, the end of secondary. What are the key challenges out there that people are experiencing, and 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 how did that reflect and represent itself in your work? Um, I guess so. Whilst there is an awful lot of research evidencing, sorry, evidencing the the value of physical activity, the value of sports, the value of physical education, um, a lot of the accountability measures perhaps don't seem to recognise that at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the the unique challenges that we see at a primary setting are: it's great that we have a primary PM sport premium, some funding that's ring fenced to support and. So clearly from the government level, there's that recognition that if we can't change habits by giving a great positive early experience of physical activity, um, and if we can't start young people on that journey of physical literacy where they've you know they've got the confidence, the competence, the knowledge of understanding as to why movement's important, but also the motivation to get up and do more of it. And it doesn't come to you easily, but if you invest time, you will get better at things mm-hmm. and then you can transfer that. Uh, whether they're physical competences to different activities or whether they're interpersonal things that you've learned through that setting and transfer that into workplace or whatever. So I guess at a primary level, there's um, there's some finance that's going there, but at the same time, there's perhaps a lack of expertise. I, th- I think typically primary practitioners really understand young people, the holistic development of a child they absolutely get. Um, but... I don't think she'd mind me saying this, but my my sister, I think, would have considered being a primary teacher at one point. Mm -hmm. And I think it's perfectly acceptable to go into primary education without necessarily having expertise in all areas of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So I should imagine there's quite a lot of primary teachers out there that perhaps hated their PE experience when they were at school. So any opportunity to get out of doing that, I can't sing. So if I was asked to teach a music class, uh, I would be doing anything that I could to avoid working out of my comfort zone i suppose it may well be the way i felt when i was teaching dance lessons as a as an early stage yeah. pe teacher i was i i did it and i actually very glad i did it and i enjoyed yeah. it but i was deeply uncomfortable in that experience it may yeah. be comparable a, a lot of the so i'd spent some time as a assistant head for teaching and learning and some of the cpd i was doing was exactly that challenging any professional to step out of their comfort zone mm-hmm. um and if you if you're willing to do that and possibly look silly uh in the process I think you can engage with students that perhaps you wouldn't have done if you stick in your normal 
fashion. But encouraging teachers to take that risk to do that, I think, is often quite a challenge. So, uh, so yeah, I guess I like getting people out of their comfort zone and reaping the reward from that. Um, so, yeah, so I guess that's what's been going on at a primary level. And then at a secondary level, we've got uh, a profession of typically, you know, we're oversubscribed of people that want to join the secondary PE profession. Uh, they last year introduced, in order to up the allocations above a 1,000, uh, because there aren't as many teachers leaving the PE profession as there are teachers leaving the rest of the profession. Um, so last year they introduced the PE plus route in so you could pick up a second subject to get into mm -hmm. education again. And on one hand, I look at that and think that that's great. We've got loads of people that want to get into the profession. The majority of PE practitioners at secondary loved their sporting experience, not necessarily their PE experience, but their sporting experience at school. And as a consequence, they continue to regurgitate what worked for them. And I guess what we've learnt over the last 10 years is children have changed. Uh, their motivations, their attitudes, their desires have changed across everything. And I'm not sure the secondary PE profession has changed their offer to reflect That's that. That's really interesting. What, where do you see that, that, that change and those drivers? What, what, what's, what's different now, say, with a... 14 year old than we might have anticipated 10 years ago um so again if i again this is very much generalizing but if if i talk to a secondary practitioner they very often raise issues of well the year sevens as they come in they, they're not able to throw catch do the fundamental movement skills they're not effective in a game situation they're not sporty as they used to be mm. um and while some of that claim may be true Actually, there's a body of research, Sport England did a, a great piece of research uh, called Under the Skin four or five years back now that was demonstrating that actually of that age group, only 19% are sport enthusiasts anyway. So actually, the demographic has changed. And if you, if you are wanting all year seven since they come into school to be games players and sports enthusiasts, you're not living in the real world right now. There is you know, a mass of students that have different motivations and different needs um, and I'm a big believer that PE can give those um, but we need to stop giving it to little versions of ourselves and start giving it to the little versions that are not like us mm. um, so the, the little Will Sways was always going to love sport in particular racket sports how do we get the other ones mm. so it's almost valuing those that are almost completely opposite to how you see yourself yeah that's, and that, that's, that's difficult. really hard to yeah. do and really hard to do early in your career as well. Mm. And I guess that's the other bit that's tough is um, you come into the profession all excited about inspiring the next generation of PE teachers or sports people or, or, or whatever. And um, you're drawn towards people that are satisfied in the same way that you were satisfied. Yeah. Um, I used to get my buzz from the three o'clock till four o'clock every day because that was the students that chose to come back to participate in the things that I was putting on after school. Mm. Um, and I guess it, I then spent an awful lot of time working with exam PE and again, love that, love the fact that I've helped support young people to go on to study sports science or to become PE teachers or et cetera, et cetera. But actually, probably where I left a more marked impact was on those few individuals that I changed their, their lifestyle habits. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, I, and I, you mentioned the word accountability earlier on with regard to secondary education yeah. is there t tell us how you see that issue um 
And again, I'm really optimistic at the moment. Amanda Spielman is saying all the right things from an Ofsted perspective as to what may come around the next uh, inspection framework. I'm hoping to get sight of that early in the spring. And I'd really encourage any of the, the profession, particularly the PE profession out there, to uh, speak up when there's consultation opportunities. So um, I think at the moment we are, as a PE profession, as custodians, I suppose, of the subject at the moment, we are responding to what we're held to account on. That's interesting. And in a secondary school setting, that's something that can be put in a league table. Um, you know, I th the, the stats of the number of Ofsted inspections and their reports that mention PE or sport is about 7 or 8%. So under the current framework, mm. not much attention is being given to PE. And on one hand, I'd love to shine the spotlight on PE and get great practice, but also some challenging practice unveiled and talked about. Mm. Um, but then the, the one thing that we can measure is the exam result at key stage four. And again, I love, and I'm still a moderator for examination PE, but that, that syllabus, that criteria is only fit for a small proportion of students. I think we discussed earlier that last year, less than one in five students do it. And I think now it's less than one in seven That's right. that take a GCSE at key stage four in PE. Well, why are we spending all our time focused on that minority of students rather than what probably got most PE teachers into the job in the first place, which was the passion for lifelong participation and movement for everybody. And how, how do we do that with that accountability, that scrutiny and that pressure on and those results? How do we balance that out? I mean, I, I, my mind jumps to the, the crucial importance, for example, of strong core values and, and, yeah. and a true identity of what is trying to be achieved. What do you think? Um, I guess it's a mix, isn't it? It's about not being defiant. If, if the system and the school uh, system at the moment, I, I've worked in a lot of schools in challenging circumstances, and I absolutely understand that the exam results are what's going to drive yeah. commitment from the local community to send their students to that school. That drives up, and I guess, the culture of the school and will change that critical mass of young people that can achieve, that want to achieve, that have got aspirations and that will help turn around the school. Um, so of course there's an element of we need to get the best exam results success for the students that we have and make sure that they choose the right pathway that they can be successful on. And I guess I'm really passionate about trying to help share good practice and share ways to get the best results that you can out of students. But at the same time, it's about, whilst not being defiant, pushing back at the, at the system and the infrastructure in schools and saying, well, when you can do your observations in PE or when you do your performance management or when we have our department teaching and learning meetings or when we are doing local networking events and talking about PE or when we're discussing things with parents, it needs to not be tunnel visioned around examination PE. Yeah, it's, it's really, I, I think it's such a good reminder, Will. I, it's so easy to go down that road, isn't it? I, and you know, we, we work a lot in examination PE work and I'm very proud of our work in that, in that area. But there is a bigger picture here, isn't there? I, when you were talking before about the, the value of someone who uh, would develop tendencies towards lifelong participation, I, I was asking myself a question. I don't think it's fair to ask you this question, but I'll ask it kind of rhetorically. I'll ask it anyway. <laughs> I, I thought, what would what is more important to me or to Will or to yeah. PE teacher XYZ? Is it the student who gets an A in the GCSE or is it the student who joins you, perhaps as a year seven, and is an inactive type, sedentary type character and then leaves you by year 11, say, for example, 
and is engaged and committed and enthusiastic and motivated to participate in physical activity, something which potentially could have a dramatic impact on their life. And thankfully, we don't have to choose one or the other, but we mustn't choose only the A. We mustn't choose, we mustn't devalue, I think, the importance of that activity level. Well, what, what's the state of well-being of students and colleagues in school today as you perceive it? Um, yeah, good question. <laughs> Going back on your previous, yeah, I'll free. answer that in a minute. But yeah. um, uh, you've made me think of there are a number of ex-students of mine that are now heads of PAP teachers that I absolutely make felt, feel old. By the way, yeah, they they make me feel old, and that's about all they give me. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas, um, if I really reflect, I, I remember. Uh, a student, I, took, I, I ran what we called a look beyond day. I worked at a school in Newark, and a lot of the students hadn't really moved out of the town, mm. let alone outside of Nottinghamshire. So we worked really hard, used some pupil premium funding, et cetera, et cetera, to try and pull together this look beyond day um, of taking students out of their school, out of their community. And of course, those little versions of me were desperate to get on the look beyond day. And it took me months of conversations and challenge to get one particular young person to come along to that session. He'd been a PE refuser for three years, taught in a different class, but at the same time, you know, I, a part of what we stood for as a PE department, as a United Front, wasn't able to give him what he needed from PE. Eventually, after lots of long conversations with his mum and with him, uh, Alex came along to that session. And I remember... Um, I was drawn towards spending that day with those little versions of me that were going to be running crazy, doing all sorts of things um, on the orienteering course and out sailing, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I chose to spend the day building a raft with Alex, which eventually sank. <laughs> and we were both stranded in the middle of this lake. And I remember the bus journey home him saying, that, that's, sir, that's the best day I've ever had. Wow. I didn't ever have a problem with him bringing his kit to pee after that. Mm. Um, and if I look, I, I don't know what Alex is doing now. Uh, he certainly won't be tuning into this. <laughs> but at the same time, I probably had a, a, a bigger marked effect on that young person's life than um, some of those people that were going to achieve in, in PE or in sport, regardless of me. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'd remind people to try and, and we're not very good as a nation, are we, to pat ourselves on the back and recognise where we've done something good. Mm. We're very quick to go, yeah, but, yeah, but, and I guess... One of the other things I really enjoy as I move around and work with schools across the country is, and this ties in, I suppose, to your question about well-being, reminding staff the difference they're making because we're not very good at sitting back and going. The new term started a couple of weeks ago. How many of those new year sevens have come in and I've taken time to learn their name, to learn something about them and to make them feel welcome in our school? And some of those that look like they weren't enjoying life because, as you as you know, the, the stats are horrendous around the number of young people with mental health issues or, or with social interaction challenges or um, that digital distraction that they think that that life that they live in their device is more important than the life that they live interacting with human beings. Mm. Um, and I guess it's that, that age-old quote of the number of interactions a teacher has that can have a marked impact every day. Um, I think the PE profession, again, is great at that, at being able to be a bright, smiling face around the corridors, around the school that interacts. And that's probably why a lot of them then go on and end up heads of year, assistant heads, et cetera, et cetera, because of that rapport relationship, yeah. that interpersonal connection they can make with people. Um, but I would say I got those things from PE and sport. 
and I want to make sure every person that comes through Peansport gets those things and gets better at those things and values those things. So, so yeah, in a, in a long roundabout way to answer your question, I think well-being is in trouble right now. And when I talk about well-being, I guess I'm talking about the physical, the social and the emotional aspects of well-being, connecting it really tightly to health. And whilst we can't put the weight on the shoulders of the PE profession to fix well-being, it's every parent, every every teacher, every politician and I guess every young person's responsibility to take ownership of their own well-being I absolutely know that physical activity and sport helps with that or can help with that mm. so you know when I've been going through challenging times there's nothing better for me than getting on the squash court and hitting some balls hard and even better than that is getting away to the coast and failing to surf and getting out in the ocean and just yeah having some space but in in the presence of physical activity i guess that's really it's really interesting i feel very similarly i've become a work obsessed individual in, in the last couple of years and allowed my physical health to deteriorate dramatically from uh from where from where i was um, i was running three and a half hour marathons three years ago four years ago sorry it was remarkable really how things have changed but um i think as well the point you make there about the the combination of the of the emotional the social and the physical is a really important one. I think I, I'm reading very frequently about issues of emotional health and, and yeah. uh, levels of stress, both amongst students and amongst teachers. Yeah. The physical health is often the thing we jump to first when we think about PE. One of the things I think is ironic about that, that we sometimes I've read um, about, let's say, obesity statistics and the problem yeah. is with PE. That might be a very blunt way of putting it. The thing I find truly remarkable about that conversation is that if you look at a child's school experience from, say, five years old till 16 years old, yeah. PE is pretty much the only time they're active in whatever it is, seven, eight, nine tenths of the rest of their curriculum. Yeah. They're sat on a chair sedentary. Yeah. So I do find it ironic that we have a very, very, very passive non-physical experience of education. Yeah. Yet, where we identify there is a health problem, we put the onus or occasionally the blame on the one subject that happens to be physical. Yeah. I find that remarkable. Yeah. Um, I, I guess my my two connections with that, I don't know if I shared with you, but the, the Daily Mail, I think it was, wrote an article that said, uh, I'm fat and I blame my PE teacher. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, not putting all of the weight on the shoulders of the PE profession, but we very much have to think about the impact we can have mm. and for every negative experience of whether it be a specific sport or physical education as a subject we're going to turn people away at least for a period of time from physical activity you know we particularly around girls yeah. we know there's that huge drop off at key stage four because the drivers for them are around fun and friendships they're not around uh for most mm. competition mm. and uh demonstrating uh superiority in a particular sporting setting so a lot of them will drop out of it it's really before... interesting I, I really sorry to, I, I must no, go I, go I, i've never thought about that concept until you said it, that the experience of demonstrating superior superiority in a particular sport it's quite an odd concept when you think about it sport of course you can you can learn a great deal from competition competition can elevate performance level it can be very enjoyable both the experience of winning and sometimes losing yeah but you're right ultimately many many sporting experiences about demonstrating superiority and that is not going to engage all people 
not everyone can be a winner, can they? Well, um, I, I often say, I, I remember saying numerous times in the videos that, I, that I've made for the, for the website that um, in the best case scenario in sport, you win less than 50% of the time. If you're, say, an athlete or a swimmer, you win a lot less on average. You yeah. know, you're at one-eighth of the time or something like that, or one-fifteenth. So the winner is quite an unusual experience in sport. The superior individual is quite an unusual. That, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Again, why do we sensationalize, or, or why do we why do we elevate that position to such esteem in our society? It's quite interesting. Yeah, and uh, I guess it's the glamour and the glory and getting caught up in the hype of that. Um, I was lucky enough to go out to, to the Commonwealth, not with work actually on holiday, but uh, was there when uh, the England Roses won the netball. Mm. And again, what an exciting story to yeah. be a part of, but be able to witness mm. live. Um, again, my other half is, is a huge netball fan. And it's been quite interesting seeing the impact that that's had back now on participation, on engagement. on So so those role models can play a really that's powerful true. part in driving uh, behaviour change. But again, thinking back to my teaching days and, and teaching football, my experiences when I turned from teacher to refereeing the game, whether that be against a different school or as part of the lesson, the attitudes of young people towards me when I donned the I'm the referee right now was what they'd seen role modelled to them yeah. at sort of professional football standards. Mm. Uh, and that's not something that I wanted to instill in terms of the character traits and the, uh, you know, that's probably what drew me far more to teaching rugby in schools because I preferred the, I guess, the the ethos that that was trying to instill. And, and certainly what, when you watch it on television, that um, was expected from the game. Uh, and I'm not to say that, that it can't be expected from the game of football. It just very often isn't. Um, the, sta so, yeah. the standards are low, I think it's fair to say, <laughs> football. The, sta the standards are significant. There's, some, there's someone in this room who is aware that during her football match on Sunday, I had a little crossword with a referee as she was playing. So I can't, I can't speak too loudly, but um, but it's true that those standards and customs within within soccer, within football, are really low standards, really. But let's change tact here a little bit, um, Will. You've mentioned this term of change management uh, once already today. Yep. Now, as someone who is started or imminently starting their experience of studying masters in educational leadership, change management seems to be a theme, a hot point, a topic for you. What, what what is it yeah. and why does it feel important? Um, I guess so. In in a school setting, I, I guess I'm always driven to try and be uh, or have that that educational experience be the best that it can be. Have helping practitioners be the best that they can be, um, and I'm drawn towards the idea of change because typically that gets surrounded by energy and enthusiasm to do something. Mm -hmm. um, Whereas when things get, I guess, quite stable, to me they can sometimes uh, be less attractive uh, to get to get involved in. Um, so I guess there's for me maybe that's the the sportsman in me, the the competitive element yeah. of me that's looking for opportunity to drive change and to be a part of and and be a key component in trying to help change happen, um, and. I think in the majority of education settings, there is change that is needed. Uh, so even in schools that uh, perhaps are rated by, by Ofsted as outstanding, 
that perhaps something that helps keep them there is the fact that they are relentless about trying to drive change. And when I say that, I'm not talking about this revolutionary big thing. I'm talking about all of those small step behavior change. Um, we had a, a guy, Jez Rose, a behavioral psychologist, speak at our conference a couple of years ago and talked really eloquently about that idea that if you're looking for big change, it's made up from lots of little steps. There isn't that eureka moment, that magic wand that's suddenly going to fix and cause change. Yes, there are sometimes convoluted pathways to get to the same end result, and there might be a shortcut that can help drive that. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm just fascinated by the idea of how can people help drive things to be better than they are at the moment. I think it's interesting. I tend to I tend to see on a societal level, our society is pretty much defined by consistency. I might use conservatism, keeping what it's been like before is quite typical. I actually agree with you that truly great cultures are defined by continuous and cultural change at the heart of what happens. It's not something that, ha that happens because we, we get some results or some data that suggests we need to make a change, but it's, but it's a cultural phenomenon where change is built into the day-to-day -day experience of every time we do something, we challenge it as not necessarily the best we can do it and keep going in that direction. Yeah. I love environments like that. Yeah, but But you have to have had confidence and self-esteem to have achieved in places that have needed change before mm. to be drawn towards that um so again this this move for me from uh from teaching to youth sport trust the national charity to uh independent or free, freelance consultant is another chapter of change that um is going to be a bit wobbly for a period but i'm kind of thinking that the more times you do that and force a wobble you end up in a better place in the long run um and I guess, um, yeah, I'm drawn towards the excitement that comes from that. Mm. Okay, so in that, in that case, if we address the idea of the comfort zone, then you're, yep. out, you're out of it right now. You've taken a step. I'm not going to call it a leap because I'm sure you've thought it through a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> but what drives people, in your opinion, then, to be in the comfort zone? Because I often feel that people are choosing to be in the comfort zone or they're trying to stay in the comfort zone. Why is, my life is almost the complete opposite to that. I'm yeah. never, ever in yeah. the comfort zone. So I find it now hard to reposition my mind back or, or to empathize back into that mentality. I'm not saying I've never been there. I'm sure I have. But right now I can't put myself there. How, how do you interpret that? Uh, so I've got a few things to say on that. What, what about habits, which I'll forget about, so remind me to talk to you about habits. Um, but the, the other bit, I guess Ali Oliver, our, our uh, chief exec at, at YST, she's very passionate, a big believer in that idea of being agile um, and as an organisation being ready up for and uh, ahead of the curve with change. I love that. I love that desire to continue to, and to, to go where it's challenging, not go where it's easy. Mm. And I guess that's, counterintuitive to a lot of people um i don't know if you've ever seen the change curve mm. and uh whether that be around anything to do with your life or your work there's that period of chaos that happens just after you you know there's the denial and then there's the chaos and that place is uncomfortable um i guess if we take it into the teaching environment we talk about that as the learning pit and actually if students go through school always just learning a bit more and, and succeeding, 
in the performance zone, um, they will only get a little bit better. There'll only be marginal gains in what they've learned because they sort of got it before. Um, what we don't do a very good job of, because we live in a, a fairly testing environment, in terms of we do a lot of testing, we ask people to be in their performance zone far too often, rather than putting them in their practice zone where we go, it's fine to fail. In fact, failing is good because when you fail, you realize what you don't know or what you need to know, or you unpick something that's deeper and harder to understand to get to a different place. Um, I've always been really interested in uh, some of the organizations that will drive uh, perhaps people with a first degree into education. And for me, the best math teacher for me would be someone that isn't particularly good at maths because they need to articulate it to someone who's not very good at maths. Um, and your ability in a particular subject doesn't necessarily make you a good communicator, facilitator of learning of that subject. Um, again, I remember that the, I always wanted to be an architect as a kid uh, and my PE experience wasn't great at school, but I, loved, I had a very sporty family. I played a lot of squash tennis and uh, bits of rugby outside of school. And I always thought that was just something I did for me um, until a new PE teacher started just as I was entering into GCSE years. wasn't particularly academic at school, so agreed with my parents that you know PE's GCSE would be a good option because then I could actually do my academic time in the other subjects. Mm. Um, and actually, that PE teacher wasn't many pages ahead of us in the textbook. He'd retrained. I think he was an art teacher previously and retrained to PE. And I think he was able to. His interpersonal skills enabled him to connect with us as a class. And in fact, of that class, a lot of us went on to study sport and PE at, at university. But he also didn't bamboozle us with his greater knowledge of the subject, which I always challenged myself back on when I was teaching GCSE or A-level because I had a sports science degree and had done physiology and bio, biomechanics quite a high level. I had to keep reminding myself of not overcomplicating the story for young people. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, I don't know what, how I've ended up in that conversation, but I guess one of the keys to great teaching is about supporting people to get into a place where they don't understand and they're trying hard to figure something out to get out the other side. I, I, I'm a big fan of confusion, massive yeah. fan of stuckness. Not yeah. permanent, temporary. Yeah. I am, a, I am a huge advocate of making repeated errors in the practice environment. Yeah. Um, I, I often tell a story of one student I work with who, one of those students who, she probably didn't need me, have got the the a anyway yeah give her the textbook tell her what she needs to learn she would have done it yeah i remember her punching the air at one point uh, when she was um, doing some uh, practice quizzing and i had a word with her i said to her um what happened and she said well i got one wrong I was like, okay and i said so why the celebration she said well now i know what i need to do and I thought that mentality was magnificent. That's brilliant, isn't it? Absolutely magnificent mentality. She celebrated the fact that she had found diagnostically the gap in where in she needed mind. to be. Yeah. And I think too frequently something like um, error identification is not so much on the games field or on the swimming pool, or but error identification is very rarely followed up by error correction. And error identification is also far too frequently summative within its experience when in reality it should be formative and therefore lead to a certain diagnostic flow up 
and there are too few experiences in schools where we're de we're working on that level right now. It might, that's just my personal. Yeah, opinion. absolutely. But that's because again, I'll come back to the habit bit in a minute. But we're drawn towards we want to feel good, don't we? Mm. And you feel good when you're successful. So I was drawn towards a, a, at an A level, spending my time particularly in physiology because for some reason that just worked with my brain. I could remember it and I could do it. So I'd rather spend all evening being able to say I've been up all evening revising either rereading the notes that I already knew or answering questions in physiology because I could answer them. Yeah. I didn't spend time in sociocultural issues because for whatever reason right then, it wasn't as relevant to me. I couldn't remember it. And I didn't spend time doing my physics work because that was just too hard. And it wasn't until I had aspirations of where I wanted to go and the grades I needed that all that changed for me. And I invested all of my time in physics because that was going to be the blocker for the thing I wanted next. Mm -hmm. So again, it's that trying to help young people and teachers in their schools think, well, what is going to be the blocker to success or what does success look like for you and how do we get you there? Um, but yeah, going back to the habits bit. So I stayed in a hotel uh, just down the road last night. and In all the shot of all places. <laughs> yeah, why did I do that? <laughs> uh, but it was interesting. Um, and... We are creatures of habit. We like to do what we do. If we came back in here again tomorrow, I bet we'd sit in the same two seats. Mm. And so I, at my dinner alone downstairs, and my habit was get my phone out and flip through my phone because I don't smoke, thankfully. Mm -hmm. And the phone is that, that, that comfort zone place that we go to. But the seat I chose last night is the same seat I chose for breakfast this morning. That's interesting. And when you walk into a classroom... The students will choose to sit the same place they happen to sit the first day, unless as a teacher, you're finding ways to challenge and change that. So, yeah, I just think we, I love the Einstein quote of uh, if, if, if you continue to do things the same way and expect different results, mm. then that's the, the definition of insanity. See, I think that's interesting. One of the things, that, uh, this might come across as a bit extreme, but you, you know that saying, uh, if at first you don't succeed. We, we've all heard this. Yeah, and we've yeah. probably all said it numerous times. And, and, of course, the classic is try, try again. Now, I understand what that saying is getting at. My saying to myself is, if at first you don't succeed, try it completely differently. So for me, yeah. there's probably... A gray area in between where you know you drill and you repeat and you you know if, if it's a core skill or core knowledge you have to drill and of course but if you're not succeeding then do something different try something else try something that might work better and i think too infrequently do we have the tendency that the classic one in my mind is how frequently do we as educators as teachers walk into let's loosely call it a classroom environment it could be any of any kind yep a lab, a sports field, a, a desk and chairs, whatever. How frequently do we walk into that classroom environment and ask re ask real questions about why it's set up and equipped the way it actually is? So for me now, that's all I do. Yeah. I question everything. I, I walk into a room and I, I, can, I try and pick out the reasons why there's a whiteboard, there's rows of chairs, it's all facing in one direction. And I understand now roughly why that might be. I don't think we're encouraged to think like that in education. No, I'd agree. And it's exciting to challenge that. And you know, when you change that, it's exciting again, isn't it? Something as little in a classroom as students turning up to finding the the room, the environment can be different. And that's as simple as, uh, we used to do a lot of teaching in uh, a T uh, formation. So I'd set up the table so I had two people here and two people here. So they could still see the board and do things that we were doing at the front. It was far more about that cooperative learning and the table learning. Um, 
And just the walking into a room and seeing that elicited a different response and a different attitude towards what that lesson was going to be about for the students. Um, And yes, it took some time and effort, but actually just that simple thing probably had more impact on that lesson than me staying up all night preparing for it and and prepping a a WYSI presentation or or finding a great clip on YouTube that I could use in it. So yeah, I think we just need to drive people to think differently if you want to achieve different results and if you want to drive something different. You used the word custodians earlier. I yep. think if I, I, I'd have to go back in the clip to let you remember exactly, you said something like teachers are custodians. I guess what do you mean by that? I was talking specifically about physical education mm. teachers yeah. and, and custodians of PE. And I guess, I, you know, I hope PE will still exist, maybe in a different name, but it will still exist well after the time that we're gone. Um, but I guess I talk about it as a way of being taking ownership and responsibility over what it stands for. Um, and I guess if we look back through history, why PE came to the fore in the first place was about being fit for war. Um, later than that, it was about being uh, fit for health. Then there was an element of, uh, I guess, the competitive sport bit and how can we get um, more people into sport and the experiences that they can get from that. Um, drawing back on your on your previous conversation, I think one of the things that sport does really well is in order to be effective and a champion at sport, you have to be willing to do things differently. So if I think of I some of the great tennis matches that have happened, the the underdog or 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 in other circumstances the 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 regular expected winner is able to change the momentum and turn the game on its head by choosing a different way a different tactic to drive at the opposition so if i play my natural game on a squash court of hitting the ball hard and going for nicks and winners all the time if i come up against someone with that same style sometimes if i'm on a purple patch it will be working for me but I have to be willing to recognise that as two very similar styles, mixing it up is more likely to be successful than keeping it the same. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the bit that I think our subject can teach people a lot about, is that changing tactics often yields great results. And when you've experienced and done that in a sports setting, it's exactly the same thing that you need to do in a work setting or in your life setting, um, but obviously in a different context. You mentioned the word fixing. Does PE need fixing then? Um, I think it's really fragmented at the moment. So again, I'm very lucky. I get to visit a lot of schools across the country and see what they're doing in PE. And I think the mistake would be in suggesting or overgeneralizing the situation. Of course. It would also be in walking into that school and observing and making judgments because uh, the thing that I love is about drawing self-reflection and helping people think about, so why have you done that the way that you've done it? Not necessarily pushing an opinion on what I felt about that experience, but an opportunity to hold up a mirror. And often you get um, some great reflections that help drive change. But also there's a lot of that stagnant water out there in PE departments where it continues to be what it's always been. It continues to be marketed and sold as the blocks of sports that you do and repeat the next year and when we complain about the fact that we're losing PE time at at Key Stage 4, so we did some research last year that said in 38% of schools across the country, and again we can't get 
the statistics we want because teachers are too busy to fill out a survey. But at the same time, without that evidence that can help us drive change, I guess our, our hands are tied a little bit. But from the schools that responded to us, 38% have seen a drop in uh, particularly key stage four curriculum time since 2012. So since yeah. we hosted the Olympics, there's been a huge drop in the amount of core curriculum PE time. And a lot of what's happening at key stage four is because it's feedback subjects and progress eight and drivers of those accountability measures are taking center stage. And I guess what as a PE profession we're perhaps struggling to articulate is the fact that when done well, our subject can give better well-being to more young people. And if we can give them better well-being, that Maslow's hierarchy of feeling safe, feeling happy, feeling healthy, uh, getting enough sleep, having positive interactions with other people. And again, you don't only get those from your PE experience, but I think PE can help articulate the message to do more of that beyond their core curriculum time. If we can unblock that Maslow stuff, the Bloom stuff almost takes care of itself. So the higher order thinking, the stuff that we're testing for at Key Stage 4, will happen better. So um, I'm sort of trying to challenge the PE profession to, to think differently about, well, so if, if your students are getting sucked out of your Key Stage 4 lessons to do more English and Maths, how are you helping prove to the young people, but also to the senior leaders in your school, that that's counterproductive? That I, I certainly know when I was at school, if you gave me more English lessons, I wouldn't have been more literate. Yeah, I, I agree with you about I that. only became relatively literate when I had a passion for what I was reading about. Um, so it's about, so how do we use, I guess, our tools for greater good? And to go back to your original question, does, does PE need fixing? Um, at a global level, I think yes, because I think um, whether it be within politics, within the media, within parents, within some teachers, within some students, there is a confusion as to what it stands for, what it is for, um, what a well physically educated young person can expect to leave school with. So again, I spend a lot of time exploring that with teachers thinking, okay, so it's not as simple as a really snazzy vision statement for what PE is for, but come on, let's have an elevator moment for a minute and you convince me what you are going to make sure every year 11 leaves your school with as an outcome from physical education. And if you can't articulate that in 30 seconds, we don't have much hope of the students being able to articulate that and therefore parents won't understand it and neither will senior leaders. Yeah, and, and potentially senior leaders will value it a lot less. Yeah. I, I um, again, um, at a previous school, uh, loved the fact that for key stage four students, if they didn't take examination PE, I only had to give them an attitude to learning grade. That saved me loads of time. As a PE department, we thought we'd won when we got that. <laughs> what we were actually doing was reinforcing to parents, students and senior leaders that no learning takes place in key stage four in that yeah. subject. Um, so we, we live now in a world after the 2014 uh, curriculum reforms of assessment without levels. Schools can do what they like. It's really time consuming coming up with a system of assessing the things that really matter that we want every student to leave school with. And I know little Johnny, who is really resilient at dribbling a ball in and out of cones and at, and at being uh, determined to achieve on a football pitch, 
I need to help little Johnny see that that same determination can be transferred into maths. And the minute that he sees that and applies himself and achieves in a different setting, we've added value to that young person, but also to the school. Um, and I guess it's that explicit learning stuff that we perhaps need to be better at in fixing career. If, if, a, if a peer colleague came to you, Will, and they said, that's great, but I don't have a voice, how would you respond to that? <laughs> I guess um, I'd laugh like I have there, in that we, we live in a time at the moment where any PE teacher you speak to is disappointed by the uh, narrowness of the GCSE PE activity list. But whilst I wasn't, in fact, and I'm guilty of this, when I was in the profession, I didn't recognise that consultation that was happening. I didn't air my voice for what I felt was the appropriate GCSE PE makeup. And because of that, I wasn't a part of that consultation and I wasn't a part of influencing what that turned out to be. And since being within my current role, but also my connections with exam boards, I've realised that very few of the PE teaching fraternity stepped up and made a voice. So actually, the irony is, for every one PE teacher that stands up and says something, their voice is quite loud. Um, certainly, colleagues at the Department of Education and at Ofsted are really eager to hear from the profession and help the profession drive change. We just have to be willing to invest the time in the future of our subject. And I guess that's my point around the custodians of the subject. We have the ability to define what it looks like in a, in a school setting. When that's working, we have an opportunity to share, talk about it, and encourage others to do similarly. And that practice will drive policy change. We, there is no point in sitting around and waiting for a magic wand that will fix it, because that won't come. So, Will, it's a brilliant place to conclude and summarise, not least because we've had the fire alarm go off twice just now and we've had to edit in some little bits there, but a, a, a massive thank you to you. I think the points that you've made are going to really engage teachers in general, definitely PE teachers out there, and there's some really valuable messages. Um, that I w Particular thanks for giving up time today. I mean, it's, it's not always easy to do these things, and the fact that you, you'll come down and you've stayed out is really appreciated. Um, and I, I also want to say, I think, as you go on your way to next job and the masters and the consultancy and the freelance, it's an exciting time. Obviously we wish you luck for that, but I think there's an awful lot of teachers who will have worked with you and alongside you through your work at the Youth Sport Trust and before that. So I think, you know, we can collectively express a big thank you. And well, not least in my case, sitting in training with you in Oxfordshire yeah. two years ago, myself and a couple of colleagues from Reading and, and Oxfordshire and various other places going over the power of PE uh, sessions as an example. And um, it's a really exciting time. We're, we're going to observe and watch what you do with, with real interest, Will. And uh, I don't know if good luck's the right word because it sounds like it's just chance, but we, we definitely wish you, wish you the best and I'm sure you're going to be successful. Brilliant. Yeah, thanks very much, James. And I certainly won't give up the soapbox. So, uh, and we'll continue to work really closely with you, Sport Trust, going forward. So encourage others to do the same i think they're a, a huge vehicle for change and as we said in the interview uh have your voice and stand up and get counted i, I agree with that i think it's i think it's a wonderful platform to, to to express views and to and to generate a little more force and momentum around the key messages we've discussed in here today about about you yeah brilliant, brilliant. well done thanks sir. very much brilliant <laughs>